Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew? We are in Matthew 23 today, and we will be beginning our reading of God's Word in verse 13, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible Word? Uh, This is the very Word of God. Let's give it our attention Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell As yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the club and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." 
Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. About 19 years ago, Marianne and I needed a new car. And I know it was about 19 years ago because that's how old Ben is. And Ben is the reason that our family needed to get a larger vehicle. And so we started searching around, and eventually I found this really nice-looking Mitsubishi SUV. Unfortunately, I found it at a car auction. A car auction is a place where dealers go to buy cars on the cheap that they can dress up and then flip to others. Sometimes you can get a really good deal, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you can get a real lemon. This was before the days when you had the internet in your pocket and could run a search on the VIN number in seconds. What you saw was what you got. And when I saw this Mitsubishi, I thought it was perfect. The paint was beautiful. The interior was in great condition. It had good tread on the tires. It was big enough to stow the boys together with their massive double stroller. By all external appearances, it looked like a great vehicle. Looks can be deceiving. And it doesn't take owning a car very long to realize that far more important than how many car washes it has had is how many oil changes it has had. And in the end, it doesn't really matter how nice the body looks if the engine is toast. There were some good things that came out of that purchase. I learned a lot about working on cars. And I also learned a valuable lesson about what to prioritize in the next vehicle, and it wasn't how it looked on the outside. Jesus says something similar about the scribes and the Pharisees in this passage When he calls them hypocrites, they looked good on the outside. They said the right things. They honored God with their lips. They appeared to do the right things. But inside, Jesus says, your heart is far from me. He compares them to whitewashed tombs, clean and ordered on the outside, but inside, full of dead men's bones. And in this passage, we hear Jesus as he now pronounces woes upon the leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy. And I think we should just say from the outset that he says a lot of very cutting things here. That doesn't make them unkind or untrue, but they are abrasive. They are cutting. They are meant to cut them down in their sins, that he might build them up in righteousness. 
Uh, They cut them down in the way that prophetic speech is meant to cut down its hearers. And it's cutting in particular because in many ways, this is Israel's final warning. As Jesus is announcing these woes that will come upon them, there is not going to be another opportunity for these leaders to repent. And the key to understanding what is going on in this somewhat difficult chapter is bound up in that word, woe. Woe. A woe is a prophetic act. It is the announcement of judgment by one who is speaking on behalf of the Lord. That's what the prophets were. They were spokesmen of God himself. And Jesus finds himself as God's last prophet standing in that long line of prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And so sometimes these indictments are directed at other nations. There are woes against Tyre and Sidon. But more often than not, when the prophets speak words of woe, they are directed specifically at God's covenant people. They are directed to the very group of people that they themselves belong. And so in speaking woe, they are sometimes speaking woe on themselves. You might remember the way that the book of Isaiah begins as Isaiah says all of these woes against Israel and then he comes to chapter 6 and he sees God high and lifted up and he says what? Woe is me. Woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of clean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woes are meant to direct you to the King in His righteousness and in His glory. The interesting thing about woes, however, is that they are not simply expressions of anger and frustration. They are also expressions of lamentation and mourning. He speaks to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 2 when he says to him, But you, O son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth. Eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and writing on the back, and there of lamentation, of mourning, and of woe. Mourning and lamentation. Think for a moment about a parent of a child who commits a serious crime. Think perhaps of one of the parents of some of these young school shooters What do those parents feel? They feel anger. They feel frustration. They feel betrayal, for sure. But that anger is mixed with a profound grief. A profound, whole-souled mourning for their child. And for the children who have been lost. And for the consequences of this action. If you took that whole complex of emotions and you turned it into an announcement of judgment against someone that you loved deeply, that's woe. 
use them to advance their own hatred, let me just say from the outset, this is to his own. That is a religious fraud of the magnitude that Jesus is rebuking right here. So as we work our way through this passage, we're going to begin by looking at Jesus' woeful condemnation in verses 13 through 28 as we consider these first three pairs of woes that Jesus speaks against his people. Secondly, we're going to look at his woeful conclusion, the seventh and final woe that sums up the other six. And then finally, we'll consider his woeful compassion in verses 37 through 39 as we consider how this woe is bound up with his lament. A woeful condemnation, a woeful conclusion, and a woeful compassion. As we get into the first point here, let me uh, just take a, a moment to say a couple of comments on the structure and how it helps us to understand this passage Uh, There are seven woes, uh, and the first six of them are paired together. These three pairs of woes correspond to the three warnings that Jesus gave about the scribes and the Pharisees at the beginning of this chapter. He said they did not practice what they preached. They failed to do the very things they claimed, and so they were leading disciples astray. Uh, He also said that they tied up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they laid them on people's shoulders. And then finally, he said that they did these things in order to be seen by others. That is to say, they, they focused on the external rights of religiosity without a corresponding focus on their own hearts. And so I believe that in this woeful condemnation, in these uh, three pairs, these six woes, there's a correspondence to those warnings. And and let me also just say that I really struggled here. (laughs) Um, I told Bill before the service this morning that this was either going to be four sermons or one. Um, But I could not get away from the fact that we are meant to read these and hear these together with the concluding note of lamentation. Uh, Plus, we're going to come back to a lot of these themes in the next chapter. And so I decided to take it all in one. And I, I don't want us to get too bogged down into the details. Again, we'll be coming back to a lot of these themes in the next chapter. Uh, But I want to summarize these woes for you. It's easy to identify them along the way because they all have exactly the same structure. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he goes on to give the reasons. For you do X, Y, and Z. And there are seven of these woes. Uh, Now, I might just make one mention here. If you are using the King James Version or the New King James Version... There's an eighth woe. Uh, That is verse 14. If you are using the ESV or the ASV or some other translation, you will find that verse 14 is missing in your Bibles. The reason verse 14 is missing is because it is a later edition. It is a scribal edition that is taken from Luke and Mark's Gospels and inserted here into Matthew. But there are actually seven woes. And so I think the ESV is right to exclude verse 14. All of the evidence of all of the early manuscripts do not include it. And so I just want to make that note here at the beginning. 
But the first pair of woes in verses 13 through 15 uh, refer to what we might call the toxic effects that the Pharisees and the scribes are having on their disciples. So on one hand, they are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They won't enter themselves, and they are also prohibiting others from entering. Uh, This is a reference to their opposition to Jesus himself. What did Jesus come preaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? It's here. It has arrived with the king. And what they are doing is they are slamming the doors of the kingdom, as it were, in people's faces. They won't go in, and they won't allow their disciples to go in. They are poisoning the well. Uh, I, I noted in our family worship this week, we happened to be reading in John chapter 6, and an example of this popped up where Jesus has been explaining that he is God's provision of the bread of life. And the Pharisees and the scribes dispute with him, and then you get this little parenthetical comment that after this, many of his disciples turned back and walked no longer with him. They had this poisoning effect. And we have just seen that poisoning effect in this chapter as they have attempted to make a mockery of Jesus, to discredit him in the eyes of the crowds by their questions. It's like they're slamming the doors of the kingdom in the faces of those who would otherwise enter. Now, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees do not have control of who ultimately enters the kingdom of God. But they are instruments and tools against God's kingdom. Jesus says, woe to you, hypocrites. So on the other one hand, they're, they're shutting people out and refusing to enter. And on the other hand, the, the, the second of this first pair is that while they are preventing people from entering the kingdom and following Jesus, they're going to extraordinary lengths to make disciples for themselves. They don't want Jesus to have disciples, but they want disciples. And so they cross land and sea to do so. And when they make them, they turn them into twice as much a child of hell as themselves. I think what Jesus is saying here uh, is that if, if they are hypocrites because they profess to love God while rejecting His Son if they don't practice what they preach, and if that is true of them, how much more true is it of the disciples that they are making? Jesus is the end and goal of their religion. He is that to which all the prophets and the Psalms and Moses spoke. And if you reject Him and take him out of the equation, the very one upon whom all the Scriptures stand, and now you make disciples, you make them twice the children of hell. They have no longer anything to hope for. They have no longer any way to truly read and interpret the Scriptures. And Jesus says, woe to you, Hypocrites. The second pair of woes is in verses 16 through 24. 
And these two woes focus on the false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the way that it it leads people astray by majoring on the minors and tying up burdens that are hard to bear. And so he calls them blind guides. Think about that picture for a moment. Blind guides. Kids, if, if I took a blindfold and I blindfolded you and then I led you around the room through these chairs, you'd probably be okay. But what if I took two blindfolds and I put one on you and then I put one on me so that I couldn't see anything at all? Do you think it would be very safe for me to lead you through all of these chairs? No. Because I would be blind. Blind guides are not good guides. They lead you into chairs. They lead you into ditches. Jesus says, you are blind guides because you're confused. You don't understand the Scriptures yourself. You make up these rules. You say, well, if you swear by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple then you're bound by your oath. We'll talk about moving the goalposts. Uh, It's like, you know, we have this expression uh, uh, when you want to swear and you really mean it, I swear by my mother's grave. And then you make this oath and then someone, you sell somebody a car and you swear it's a good car on your mother's grave and then the car dies and they come back to you and you say, well, I didn't swear by the dirt on my mother's grave. Really? You swear by the temple, but not by the gold of the temple. It's a kind of legalistic gymnastics they're engaged in, and Jesus says, woe to you. On the other hand, while they are misinterpreting the Scriptures, they are being completely fastidious when it comes to matters of the law. Things like tithing. And they're encouraging others in this. They're not just tithing their grain and wine and flocks according to the biblical command. They're tithing their spices. Right? It's like taking your spice rack and taking the mint and the dill and, and, and cutting off 10% to make sure that you are tithing on everything. All of these they're doing, they're being fastidious about these minor things while they are neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's like they're straining out a gnat to swallow a camel, Jesus says. Or to use one of our idioms, it's like they're jumping over dollars to pick up pennies. Right? This is not my command. Woe to you. Now, lots of us know how to major on the minors, don't we? and to minor on the majors. The third pair of woes is in verses 25 through 28. It focuses on their externalism, their external religiosity. Or, as Jesus said earlier, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. And so he compares them, on the one hand, uh, to those who sort of vigorously clean the outside of a cup or a plate but they leave the inside filthy. Who wants to drink out of a dirty cup? A grimy cup. I could probably find 
a young man in here who would do that. But I would say the exception proves the rule. (laughs) Nobody wants to drink out of a filthy cup. It's not only disgusting, it can be detrimental. But that's what he says they're like. They're polishing the outside, but inside they're full of greed. They're full of self-indulgence. They are so concerned about what others think of them, and yet not concerned what God thinks of them. Woe to you, hypocrites. He compares them to whitewashed tombs. You see how these pairs go together. Not only are they like cups that are polished on the outside but filthy on the inside, they're like whitewashed tombs that are whitewashed on the outside but inside are full of dead men's bones. So, he says, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again, we know how easy it is to go through the motions. We know how easy it is to be religious, to do the external things that we know we should do, the things that we know will make us appear righteous in the sight of others, all the while neglecting our hearts. And so it's these three pairs of woes that bring us to the seventh and the final woe, the woeful conclusion to the woes. You find it in verses 29 through 36 where Jesus says, you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They're honoring their dead. They're honoring those who were righteous and faithful. They're building for them extravagant tombs and they're bringing flowers to their graves, as it were. And they're all the while priding themselves and fooling themselves that they would never have been a part of what they did. They would never have been a part of the wickedness of their fathers that killed the righteous and rejected the word of the Lord. But Jesus says, no, actually, you are witnesses against yourselves because the very things that you say you would never have done are the very things that you are doing and are going to do. You're going to do it to me, and you're going to do it to the prophets and the scribes and the wise men that I send to you. And so Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Fill it up. Go ahead then. Do it. It sounds like Jesus is egging them on. It almost sounds like he is commanding his own murder. It almost sounds as though he is commanding the murder of his disciples. Uh, I think what we have going on here is uh, a sort of speech that we often get in the prophets that we might call the ironic imperative. It's like when Amos says, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. 
The prophet isn't really encouraging God's people to come and to, to transgress and multiply their transgressions. That's not the point. The, the commanding of the sin here is an ironic effort to get them to do the opposite. It's sort of like if a parent tells his teenage son, fine, race your car down 39th Avenue, get in an accident, pay a huge fine, get arrested, have your license suspended, do it. Nobody in their right mind would listen to that conversation and say the parent is encouraging their teen's reckless driving. They would understand that they are, through this use of irony, actually trying to get them to understand the foolishness of it. Don't do it. It will destroy your driving record. You will lose your license. You might kill somebody. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not, he's not actually encouraging their violence. He's attempting to get them to understand all the while knowing that they will not and that they will kill him and kill those whom he sends them. Not only will they do that, Jesus says in John's gospel, he says that when they do it, they will be fully persuaded that they are rendering service unto God. Think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was zealous because he thought he was serving the Lord in imprisoning and killing the Christians. And Jesus says, in doing this, you are witnesses against yourselves. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, and on them will come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, from the very first prophet to the very last. And then he says, truly I say to you, all these things are going to come upon this generation. I'm not talking about what's going to happen in the future. I'm talking about what you are going to do. You are going to kill the prophets. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. This seventh and final woe brings all of the woes together in their opposition to Christ and therefore in their opposition to God Himself. And that opposition is so intense that it is going to result in the murder of the Messiah. And not only of the Messiah, but of His disciples and of His prophets and the wise men He sends. And the self deception is going to be so great that they will do it believing they are honoring God. Jesus will say they will do that because they have not known the Father and they have not known me. Jesus speaks fiercely. And we might think that as frankly and as fiercely as he speaks about these things, we might think that he at this point would just be raging with righteous indignation. But remember that these woes are not just expressions of anger, they are expressions of grief. And that is why we have to read these woes together with verses 37 through 39. That's why we have to read it 
with this woeful compassion and Jesus' lament. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. he's, He's mimicking David. O Absalom, Absalom. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we're actually going to come back to this last part of this chapter in weeks to come. But I want you to get the main picture here. I want you to imagine a hawk sitting up on a branch or circling in the sky and a bunch of chicks pecking around on the ground below. And a mother hen, uh, sensing the danger for her chicks, clucks for her, her, her brood to come and to find safety under her wings. And those that come, she wraps up. And Jesus says, that, that's what this is like. That is what this is like for him. It's like he's watching the children of Jerusalem, the very city that is meant to be the symbol of his protective presence. The place where the house of God is. And he's watching them commit themselves to this course that will be for their eternal destruction. And not just for their eternal destruction, but for their earthly destruction. This house is going to be torn down, as we will see. Not one stone will be left upon the other. And Jesus is seeing all of this, and he's desiring to gather them up like a hen gathers up a brood under its wings. Jesus undoubtedly feels that righteous anger, but it is tempered by his love and lament. He would gather, they are not willing. And I think that is so important because it puts us on to what I think is the real reason behind all of these woes. It is not simply hypocrisy in and of itself. Which one of you has not played the hypocrite? We have all played the hypocrite. It's not hypocrisy in itself. It's not that they profess one thing and live another way. Which one of us has not done the same? It's not just that they have misled people or tied up heavy burdens on them. It's not even their religious uh, externalism. None of these are good things, right? They are things that Jesus is exposing and he he is cutting on. But in the end, it's not all of those things. It's the fact that in spite of the fact that he is there calling them, seeking to gather them, calling them away from destruction and away from wrath and away from woe, 
yet they refuse to come. I don't think their sins are particularly more grievous than those of the prostitutes and the tax collectors who found mercy. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes repented. When they heard the preaching of John and they heard the preaching of Jesus, Jesus said just two chapters ago, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that is, people whose whole lives are identified by their sins, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God. They enter. And they enter before you because John came to you in the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. The sin that overarches all of these other sins is their unwillingness to repent and to believe the gospel. It's their unwillingness to see their sins as Jesus exposes them and to confess their sins and to run to Jesus for safety. Now, that's not true of all. Of course, there were some scribes and Pharisees who believed, whose hearts were cut to the quick and who ran to Christ and found shelter under his wings, Nicodemus. There were those who found themselves united to Christ by faith, those for whom Christ's death and resurrection became their sole source of hope. But most prided themselves that they were righteous. And in the end, they would fill up the measure of their fathers so that the blood of Christ would be on their hands. You, through lawless hands, put to death the author of life, Peter says. So the question is not really... Are we more righteous than the scribes or the Pharisees? Jesus says we must be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But how is it that your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. It is when you run to Jesus. It is when you run to the One who was righteous, who did not live a life of hypocrisy, who did not live a life that was a sham, who did not do things for the eye service of others, but who lived His whole life for the will of His heavenly Father, who endeavored to do all that He had commanded and did, and then who took that curse, and then who pours out His righteousness on all who believe, and then who actually begins to make you righteous as His Spirit works in you so that your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, not only because you are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ, but your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees because God is writing His law upon your hearts and enabling you to be righteous. But we ought not to look at this passage 
and to think, I am so much more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. I hope that there is not anyone here today who's not convicted by these woes. I also hope that if you're feeling convicted, your answer is not to say their answer. Well, if I had lived in Jesus' days, I would never have done that. If I had lived in the days of my fathers, I would never have killed the prophets. Instead, I think our answer should be like that of Johann Hermann, who writes in the hymn, All Holy Jesus, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason. Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus. I denied thee. I crucified thee. But then Hermann also goes on to find that Jesus, as he confesses his sins and owns them, to find that Jesus is willing to gather him up. For me, kind Jesus, was thine incarnation, thy mortal sorrow and thy life's oblation, thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee and will ever pray thee. Think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. If that is your answer, Jesus will gather you up. He will take you up under the shadow of his wings, and he will protect you from all the wrath and woe that you deserve. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at these verses. We're going to consider what it means that your house is left to you desolate. We're going to consider what it means that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to consider what it means that all these things are going to come upon this generation. But today, as we reflect on these woes, let us run to Jesus and be gathered up. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our holy Jesus. Lord, we are the guilty. We crucified Thee. Lord, it is because of our sins that You went to the cross and suffered and died. And yet, Lord, we thank You that You, uh, in going to the cross for us and in our stead, that this was Your way of righteousness. This was the way in which uh, You would uh, impute righteousness to all of Your people called by Your name. It was the way in which you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to infuse righteousness upon us that we might walk in those good deeds predestined for us before the foundation of the world. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read these woes, that we would not look upon them and dismiss them and say, well, we are not like they, but that we would see we are like they, and we need you to gather us up. So gather us up, Lord Jesus, and protect us until that day when you bring us into that final expression of your house and a new heavens and a new earth. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a full Sunday, a good Sunday. 
We get the preaching of the word, we get the reception of new members, we get baptism, and we get the Lord's Supper. We get this wonderful sign of the way in which Christ continues to feed our faith and strengthen us. Uh, We have felt our sins today. Uh, I hope that we have also felt and sensed all that our Savior has done and His love for us as He cries over us, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We are His people. And this uh, symbol of the Lord's Supper uh, is a visible, tangible, as the confession says, a sensible sign, a sign accessible to our senses where we can see and taste and touch and smell all that uh, of God's goodness and kindness and love and tenderness. He is a fierce Savior. He comes to us with the full demand of God's righteousness and holiness. But then He also comes to us and He meets that demand. That is why the symbols in this meal are bread which represent a body that is torn and wine which represent blood that is shed. Because this meal is the way that Jesus gathers us up and protects us from the wrath and woe of God. And He now calls us and He invites us, all who have confessed and are repenting of their sin, to come and to eat and to drink and to have this assurance of God's kindness and goodness to us in Christ. And so if you're here today and you trust in Christ, uh, if you have professed your faith, if you have been baptized into the name of the triune God, if you are a member in good standing of a church where the gospel is faithfully being proclaimed, uh, and if you are endeavoring to walk in faith and repentance, then you should come to this meal. Even if you are discouraged, uh, even if you find the enemy accusing you of your sins, uh, you should come and find the assurance of God's grace if you truly desire to be free of your sins and to walk in a life of faith and repentance. This is a means of grace to you, and it is a meal for sinners. Jesus did not come for those who thought they were righteous. He came for sinners. And if you know yourself a sinner, if you meet those biblical qualifications and you belong to Christ, then come today. But I would also say, if you know that you don't meet these qualifications, if you do not belong to Christ, if you're not a baptized member of His church and you don't have that assurance that you belong to Him, I would encourage you to let these elements pass And I would encourage you, as you let these elements pass, to reflect on the weightiness of what that means. But I would also encourage you to run to Christ and to be gathered up under His wings. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we approach Your table now, we approach with fear and trembling. Uh, It is Your severity and kindness that lead us to repentance. Uh, Lord, we remember that you are a fierce Savior. You bring all the demand of God's holy and righteous law upon us. You are not pleased with an external performance of these things, but you uh, require an internal performance of these things. 
And yet you, you come not only with God's demand, you come also with God's remedy. You come and you bear all of this woe and this wrath. And now by this means, you would assure us of your love and grace and kindness and you would work in us that which is pleasing in your sight by your Holy Spirit that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And so use uh, these ordinary means for this holy end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.